to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Uh, now, as we jump into uh, the text today, I have a question as we begin, and I want to do a little poll. Who here is the youngest in your family? I knew it. I'm kidding. Um, I didn't. Um, but you, you, uh, some of you are the youngest, and, and the youngest child in a family has a certain way of operating, and you can tell that James is the youngest brother. He is the little brother. This letter has some strong little brother vibes. Because little brothers and little sisters kind of have a way of just saying stuff and hoping somebody else will come to their defense, right? Um, and James is doing this. I'm, I have a little brother. I'm the oldest of, of two. And my little brother so many times would just say stuff to an older kid, and I had to step in and fight said older kid. It's something about Somebody would say something about our mom, and he'd say something back. Whatever it was, I had to step up. James is that little brother. He's that annoying little brother who just jumps out and says stuff, like in verse 14, what good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Verse 17, uh, he says, faith without works is dead. Verse 20, he says, faith without, without works is useless. These are some really bold claims that little brother needs some help backing up, and he makes these claims in good faith because Jesus, his older brother, backs him up. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commands. These phrases and these statements that James says to us and to the readers of his letter are meant to stop us in our tracks. And they're meant to make us stop and examine our faith in such a way that we have to ask the question, is my faith legitimate? Is is my faith real? Now, when we read James's words here that we are saved and justified by our works, it stops us because it seems like it contradicts the Bible. It seems like it contradicts Paul, who says that we are justified by faith and not by works. So is the Bible contradicting itself? Is James just trying to pick a fight with Paul? And the reason that we say no, and that this is not a contradiction, is that the way that James and Paul are using the word justify are different. They're using the same word in different ways. The same word in different ways. Words can have different meanings. So when you think of the word swing, what comes to mind? Somebody give me an example. Swing. That's a lie. Some, one at a time. Say again. Swing dance, okay. Like a playground swing. What else? Swing a club or a bat. We can use the word swing in multiple different ways. We can use the word swing in ways where we swing a club or a bat or, or, or swing dancing. And in the same way here, Paul and James are using the word justify in different ways. They're using the word justify in different ways to communicate different elements of the same salvation. And that's important for us to understand because Paul, when he says that we are justified by faith, what he means is that we are the initial declaration of being made right with God, justified with God, is based on faith or trust in the unmerited work of Jesus. That our trust in what Jesus has done alone, not in our good deeds or our, what we do to make, make ourselves right with God, is what justifies us. We are justified by faith. We're made right. The way that, and we see this in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying that faith leads to a justification that makes us right with God and gives us peace with him. He goes on in verse 2 of Romans 5 to say that it gives us access to God. So the type of faith or the type of justification that is by faith is what enters you into a new relationship with him. James, on the other hand, is using the word justify in a totally different way. He's using it in such a way that he's not talking about being made right with God, but proving that you are right with God. Not as the grounds for why you're acceptable to God, but to prove that you believe you already are, to prove that the gospel has taken deep root in your heart and blossomed in faith, and that that faith will lead to action. And so what he's saying is that what you believe is evidenced by what you do. That what you say you believe is evidenced by a changed life, and it's the proof that you were made actually right with God. And we see the relationship between faith and works, and that we need both, but for different reasons. Tim Keller uses the comparison of of how we see depth with our eyes, that you need two eyes to be able to understand depth. And so one eye is looking at the foreground, and one eye is looking at the background. And so in this way, faith is looking at the short ground, the way that we're made right with God, and works is looking at the long haul, and it shows us the depth of God's work in you as he's made you right with him to show how this fleshes itself out. And so what James does is he gives us a picture of what this looks like in the life of a believer. And so we're going to look at some uh, some test cases for faith. And the greatest test case, and our first point this morning is this, that love for others demonstrates your love for God. Love for others demonstrates your love for God. Look at the, the second half of verse 14. It says, can that faith save him? That is a rhetorical question. It's like when you were a kid and your parents said, did you break the lamp? They knew you broke the lamp. This is a rhetorical question. Can that faith save? No. Can a faith that doesn't exhibit itself in works save you? No. Because it's an expression of love. Faith at its deepest is we know and we love God and we trust him at his word And so James gives an example in verses 15 through 17 of how this love for God is expressed in love for others by giving us a hypothetical situation about a brother or sister in Christ who's in need. Now, as James is laying this out as a hypothetical, it's very likely that this would have been a real-life scenario for them. This would be a real-life scenario coming off the heels of James chapter 2, 1 through 13, as Matt Waldrop talked about the sin of partiality a couple of weeks ago. They clearly had socioeconomic diversity as a congregation. But we need to zero in here on what's being said, because last week we looked at uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, about the general call for care for the poor and the oppressed. But here we're seeing a particular responsibility that you and I have for others in our own congregation. When other people are in need, not just not just physically, not when it just comes to food or, or to clothing, but emotionally, spiritually, friendship. Are we stepping into the needs that we see most often because these are the people we interact with the most, the people that we should be familiar with, the people that we should be most face-to-face with? And here it says, zeroing in, that it's those who are poorly clothed, who didn't have enough to keep warm, or those who were lacking in food, just the bare basics of, uh, of being able to live And he says a a, a worksless faith would be like this, that you hear of this need 
and then would callously say, go in peace. Be warmed and filled. That sounds really holy, right? Go in peace. But not actually meeting the need that is before you. Not actually helping a person get warm. Not actually feeding them. And he says, what good is that? It's like saying, what good is that faith? It's just, it's just words. It's just a proclamation. It's, it's, just, it's a failure to give peace. It's a failure to actually warm. And it's as if James is saying, how can you say you believe when your actions say otherwise? How can you say you believe when they don't seem to be at all informed by what Jesus has done for you? And in verse 17, he says, that type of faith is dead. It's empty. It's lifeless. Last Sunday, I left here uh, to go do my duties with, with the Red Sox for chapel over there, and I noticed that the battery light on my car came on. And I'm like, that's not a good thing. I tend to, you know, I don't like to ignore those things. So I get there, my car starts to slow down, I kind of limp into Fenway, end up on Jersey Street Park, go do my thing. I start to come back, and it starts doing it again, and I limp my car all the way to the Arboretum, and I am able to pull over as my car dies. It is dead as a doornail on the side of the road. It's not going anywhere. And what I found out as I took it to Honda, and it was not cheap, is that a valve on top of the engine had exploded and poured oil all over the alternator, which is not good. I don't know much about cars, but that's not good. And it killed and zapped the power source in my car. The evidence that my car is dead is the fact that it would not run. But underneath that is the power that actually causes it to run. There's, there's something wrong. That The evidence shows that there's something wrong underneath the hood. And for us, our works are evidence that there's something wrong underneath the hood of our hearts. That we're not living out our faith. And in fact, without that power source, it's not really a car at all because cars are supposed to drive. And James is saying that faith that is dead is not faith at all. What good is it? Because Jesus said that love for God, which is the greatest commandment, that there's another commandment like it, in other words, on the same level, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that these are not two commands, but these, these are one command flowing into the other, that love for God will always lead to loving other people. Or as Douglas Moo says, that James is not arguing that works must be added to faith. His point, rather, is that genuine biblical faith will inevitably be characterized by works. Love for neighbor requires demonstration and action. Now, this past week, as Matt alluded to at the beginning of the service, we, there was a, a big news week, uh, and this week we saw Roe v. Wade overturned. And with this, there was a flurry of emotions around, around this decision, um, as we think about this, it didn't end abortion. Um, it, it turned the decision back over to the state, saying that this was not a constitutional right. And I know this is a complex issue as we, we think about how we engage in this as Christians. Uh, I think on one end, like I, I believe biblically, uh, you saw in 139, that, um, that the God knits the, the infant in the, in the womb of the mother, and biologically that we are talking about a person. Um, I believe that the, the kingdom of God would be a place where there are no abortions and there is no need because we are loving and caring for people. It would be a place where there is no sin. But there's a complexity to this issue in the sense that people come with stories and they come with experiences and they come with a past. And, and I think we have to look at this a little more holistically as we approach how to be pro-life people. 
And, and I, I got this from Matt Waldrop, who shared this on a story uh, from John Tyson, who's the pastor of the Church of the, uh, Church of the City in New York City. And he said, we need to understand that people are processing this at at least six different levels. And you'll see these up on the screen. Uh, that people are ex, 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 uh, processing this publicly. How, what are the cultural implications of this decision? Uh, they're processing policy. What are the legal implications of this policy? And we do see um, some states that have you know, trigger, uh, tr- you know, trigger laws and things like that, in some ways even ignoring the ways that they need to care for women, vulnerable women. Uh, we see a principle um, that there's a biblical framework for life that we see. Uh, pastorally, how do you love and care for other people who are in vulnerable situations or, have, or things have happened in the past? Personally, uh, what was my own processing of this? And I'm processing this personally. And then prophetically, how does God's word speak truth to this and speak truth to power? And so the question for us is, how do we love our neighbor in a post-Roe world? And I believe this is multifaceted. It's coming alongside vulnerable women with empathy and grace. It's supporting pregnancy centers. It's entering into foster care and adoption. It's voting for policies for better health care and to make it a lot easier to raise kids. It's lowering the cost of adoption. It's, and the reality of this is if it's only about a law and that's all it ever is, it's like us saying, go in peace, be warmed and filled. We have to put our faith into action. We have to put our belief in life to action. And what James is saying here is he's saying to do so is unthinkably unchristian if if what we do is simply say, go in peace. Because caring for the vulnerable is not super Christianity. This is what a biblically grounded, biblically faithful Christian does. And to do otherwise would be to run totally counter to the way faithful Christians are already disproportionately giving their time and energy and money to things like foster care and adoption, to caring for the poor and to serving the vulnerable. And this is a way that we as a church and as Christians can up our game and continue the work of being whole life Christians from the womb to the tomb. We see in verse 18 that, that James begins to shift his focus a little bit, not just to our actions, but to the claim that we can just have an intellectual faith. He says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What, what James is saying here is he puts a purely intellectual argument about God up against a life that's been radically reoriented around those truths. And he's asking the question, which one of these appears to be more authentic, simply your words about believing or my action about believing? And he gives an example of this in verse 19, where he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons have an intellectual understanding that there is a God. Now, I have an intellectual understanding that Bubby's pickles, according to my wife, are the greatest pickles on the planet. Okay, I hear some amens, people who've experienced this. We had the Bubby's pickles, and there's something that's in brine, and I don't know, they blessed it. I don't know what happened to it, but, um, but I know in my head that they're the best pickles on the planet. But here's the thing about pickles. They're nasty. They're gross. I will return my Chick-fil-A sandwich if it has a pickle on it, because I don't like pickles. I shudder at them. I fear them because they're gross. 
and I can have an intellectual understanding that these are the best pickles on the planet, but I don't love them. In fact, I hate them. The demons had an intellectual understanding that God is one, but yet did not love him. They feared him, but they did not love him. See, you can know and not love. You can know and not be changed. You can know and not want God. And what's being said here, and this is really scary for you, particularly if you grew up in church, is you can have good theology. You can have good doctrine. You can agree with the right things and not be transformed by them. You can believe these things and not be letting them change you and not be the place where you rest and not being what you hope in. And what the wording here is even important because it says you believe that God is one. Now, if you were a Jewish believer, this would take you all the way back to being a little kid when you heard the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, O Israel, hear, O Israel, which is the word Shema, O hear, Israel, God is one. This great truth but here's what it should lead into. The next verse of Deuteronomy 6, 5 is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This incredible truth that the demons knew intellectually did not lead them to love God, and we can fall into the same error when our faith is just simply intellectual and doesn't get deep down into our hearts. What we know about God, our faith, should lead us to love him, to express it through the work of worship and demonstrable love for other people. But the reason that we often don't change is it just kind of bounces off the surface. This is, this is my nerdy illustration for this, uh, for this morning, is I love Star Wars, okay? And if you watch the first Star Wars, which is episode four, it's a thing. Um, and, and in that, there's the Death Star, and they have this whole plan to take uh, to, to go and to, to shoot a, a photon ray down this ventilation shaft and get to the very core of the Death Star, the one weakness. And the first guy makes his run and he shoots and he thinks that it made impact, but he realizes it just made impact on the surface. That's our hearts. Oftentimes we, we hear the Word of God. We, we read the Word of God. We, we pray the Word of God. We sing about the Word of God, but it's only getting to the surface. It's not getting to the core of who we are and detonating our hearts and reshaping who we are. And so are the things that you say you believe getting deep down into your heart? Are they changing you? Are they leading you to love others in light of who God is and what he has done? And so what James has been describing here is a type of workless faith, a type of faith that doesn't lead to works, but especially in a city like Boston where we're activists and we like to serve others, we're philanthropic, it can actually lead to the opposite error. We swing the pendulum to the other side where we end up with just faithless works. We want to do the things of God without giving glory to God. We want to do things to get God's approval without believing we've already been approved by him. And so we have to kind of figure out how these things work together. So secondly, we need to see how faith and works work. I know that's cheesy, but it's going to help it stick. We need to understand how faith and works works. We look at verses 21 through 24, and we again see some examples, some positive examples of how this all works together. Verse 21 says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now again, if you were a Jewish believer, that would have gotten your attention. You'd be like, Abraham, that's my guy. I I loved reading about Abraham as a kid. I remember this great paragon of the faith that we could look up to. He was the largest figure of the Hebrew people. 
And he's one of the most, he had one of the most famous stories in all of Genesis here where it's describing him being willing to sacrifice his own son. Now we need to understand the background of what's being said here to really understand why this is so significant. In Genesis chapter 12, we see God made a promise to Abraham that he would make him a father of many nations. Now the problem with that is that Abraham is 75 years old and he's about to be a first time dad. I'm tired just hearing that. And and so he makes this promise, Abraham has to wait 25 years, and then God gives him a son, this long-awaited fruition of the promise. And then God here asks him to sacrifice that son. Hold nothing back for me. And James says that because of this act, that he is justified by works, and in verse 22, that his faith was completed by his works. Now, we've got to remember back to the beginning of the sermon. Again, it's not how he was made right, but it's how he proves he was made right. His willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac didn't earn him a relationship with God. It didn't earn him like spiritual brownie points. It proved that Abraham trusted God at his word. That he believed God would still make him a father of many nations. That he believed that God would spare his son and provide a substitute that he was willing to be obedient, holding nothing back, saying, I will trust you alone. And that is the fruition of works is saying, God, I will do what you call me to do because I believe you. He proved it. Now here, verse 23 is where things really start to get interesting. Things start to really come together. And it says in verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God. Now, this, this verse here is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it says that he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so James takes this, and he interprets it, and he says that Abraham's action and his obedience prove that he's right with God. It justified him. But listen to how Paul takes the exact same passage and looks at it a different way. Romans 4, verses 1 through 3. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So who's right, Paul or James? Both are. Again, Abraham believed by faith alone, was made right with God, And it evidences it by works, proving that he's right with God. And so what we see is faith is what drives works. Faith is what leads us to believe. And so I'm saying, I'm going to act on what I believe. Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, Martin Luther's successor in Lutheranism, said that we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. And so true faith always leads to acting on what you believe. It's not a tag on. Peter Davids says that works are not an extra or an added extra to faith, but are an essential expression of it. Now, have you ever been subjected, subjected to having to do a trust fall for work? Anybody ever had to do that? Anybody ever had to experience that trauma? Um, there got to be better ways. I'm way too old for that. It's a business decision. I got to actually work tomorrow. But the basic idea of a trust fall is that you stand, you fall backwards, and you let people catch you. And the most extreme version I've seen of this is you get up on a platform and everybody's holding their arms out like this, singing Kumbaya, and you fall off, and they catch you, or you die. And, uh, and so as this happens, what you're saying in this symbolic action is, I trust you. 
I, I trust that you're going to do it. But if you've ever done it and you, got, you think people are a little sketchy, as soon as you start to fall backwards, you put your foot back, right? You stumble. In your head, you say, I trust you. And sometimes they'll even make you verbalize those words, I trust you. But your actions betray you. See, true faith or belief is believing the truth and acting on it. And these two things are inseparable. We see in verse 22 that you see that faith was active along with his works. And our works reveal what we believe. So when you say, Jesus, you're enough, do you truly rest in the fact that he's enough or do you turn to other things to satisfy? When you say words like, Jesus, you're all that I need, do you rest in that and stop looking or do you continue to look for something more? When you say, I believe that I'm a child of God, then why do we so often live like orphans? Why do we so often live like we need to earn a place in our Father's house? That we're not safe with God. When we say, God, I believe that I'm forgiven, why do we keep trying to stack up our good deeds in order to make God proud? But what if we could give ourselves away to God like Abraham did? Give ourselves away to Jesus holding nothing back. And what enables us to do this lastly is grace. Grace makes faith and works possible. You ever think about this? Why did God interact with Abraham in the first place? We really don't see why. It's not like God's sitting there reading resumes and he's like, oh, Abraham, he's a good candidate. You ever think about that? I mean, I'm sure that there, from just a worldly sense, there were people who were more successful. There were people who were more accomplished, had a, you know, had a better track record, who had better families, who had bigger potential. You know, God didn't decide to speak to Abraham because of his spotless record. In fact, he found Abraham as an idol worshiper in what would be modern-day Iraq. He didn't look at Abraham and see his potential. He didn't look at Abraham and say, this guy's never going to mess up. In fact, he messed up royally. We'll cover that in Genesis when we get there in the fall. He simply did it because of his grace. He simply reached out to Abraham because he was gracious, not because of anything about Abraham, not because of anything Abraham had done or would do, but simply because of his pure and unmerited grace. See, grace is getting what you do not deserve. And what that undeserved grace does is opens up an opportunity for us to believe. It makes a way for us to have access to God through the work of Christ. It creates an opportunity for us to do good works because we've already been given the required access. I love sports. I love all sports. I love everything about going to a sporting event. And one of my favorite things to watch is when they bring someone off, out of the stands to do like a half-court shot. You know what I'm talking about? They have the guy come out, he does a half-court shot, and he shoots the ball, and if, he, if the ball goes in, he gets a million dollars or his tuition paid for or whatever it might be. I love that. But the reality is, is they have to let him on the court. Like if you're just watching the, the Celtics and you decide to come up out of the nosebleeds and just go grab the ball from Jason Tatum and shoot the ball from half-court, they're not giving you a million dollars. They're going to arrest you. You have to be granted access. Grace grants us the access to place our faith in him. It grants us the access to do good works before him. And we see this in the story of Rahab. And I love that James picks the two examples of, of Abraham, who everybody would have looked up to as his figure of faith, and Rahab, who had a reputation. It says both of them need a Savior, and both of them have access to a Savior because of Jesus, because of his grace. Rahab 
a woman uh, who was a prostitute. We see in Joshua chapter two, um, the Hebrew people have left Egypt and God is giving them the promised land and he requires that they take the promised land from pagan nations. And the first one they run into is the city of Jericho. And so Joshua sends spies in and Rahab houses these spies to protect them. And as she's hiding them, the authorities come and it would have really helped her out if she would have just ratted them out. I'm sure it would have gotten her some social credit, gotten her some, some money, something to protect her family if she just would have said where the spies were. But she lies to protect them. And she, when she doesn't do it, and when she's asked why, she says, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. And she talks about the fear that she has of God and how, how it has melted their hearts. She exhibits faith through her, her actions at great cost to herself, risking her family, her home, her safety, believing that God was of greater value. And those who've experienced the grace of God understand the cost that they're willing to pay because they see the cost that God paid for you, for us. Because grace is this, you're not right with God. You're not right with God on your own. You have to be made right. There's no way to earn your way in to get access. So God sent the only one who is right for you, his very own son, so that you could trust in his work for you, so that you could hope in him, and so that your life could be changed to exhibit good works to the glory of God. And here's the end goal, kind of tucked in at the end of verse 23. You see that Abraham, after he did all this, he was called a friend of God. Rahab is a friend of God. Anyone who puts their faith and their trust in Jesus is a friend of God. And we get to live out good works to the glory of God. Let's pray.